1: Well, she comes with her own song now, Alex Harris, Bloomberg News Bond reporter, here to help us recap those June FOMC meeting minutes. Uh, Alex, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah,
1: and- so what did you, I mean, I know you've been, you know, you got your green highlighter out, which is good. <laughs> um, and I've been reading the blog that we put together for all kinds of live events, and um, anything in terms of uh, that stands out i mean they talked about here you're going to pro- if you're looking for any big debate that might have happened at that june 12th june 13th meeting you're going to have to look somewhere else because it probably wasn't one yeah
2: you know, it really wasn't the expectation was that these meetings these minutes weren't gonna show us a lot. You know, that everything had been said, the forecasts had been updated, those were released, you know, you had the Powell press conference after the meeting on june thirteenth. So that these were gonna be pretty blasé. However, I think what's interesting is, you know, one and we've highlighted this on the terminal, is the trade concerns, is that they're now starting to see risks from the trade policy. And, you know, it was one thing for Powell to just mention this at Centra, but now that it was actually in the minutes that there was an actual discussion about it. And now with this sort of looming deadline for Chinese tariffs going into effect at midnight—you know these are these are things that there's a broader concern out there.
3: Hey, Alex, you've you've had about 18 minutes to digest these minutes, so <laughs> he's I'm got sure a stopwatch. Ex- he he hit the stop. Well, I de- I'm at 2 not PM. counting
2: the time that she's
3: been talking. Oh, but maybe she's been part. multitasking, going over the minutes while she's been talking to our listeners. But I'm, I can't help but feel that that this this concern. Listen, the Fed is very happy about the way the economy is going. The one big thing that they pick out as a negative is trade, and I can't help but think this is an own goal. That's just my opinion. It's not worth anything. What does the Fed think? Does the Fed have any kind of does does it is there any opinion there about what the 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 the, uh, the executive branch could do to help this out?
2: I mean, obviously the tariffs aren't great, but, you know, they're like – Powell has has reiterated. They don't make trade policy. You know, they're going to stay in their lane on this one. So they can only hope that, you know, they soften, that the Trump administration softens the stance. But, you know, what they're looking at and what their concern is is that spillover. is At what point when we start getting economic data that shows the effects of this trade policy on the broader economy? Because that's what – if they're still data dependent, that's what's going to give them concern. You know, the other thing that actually took up quite a few pages um, from what I've read of the minute so far is the yield curve discussion, is that we're finally getting that yield curve discussion that everyone in the bond market has been craving. You know, now that the 210 curve is at around, I think, 28 basis points today and very closely, um, quickly heading towards that next line in the sand, which is 25 basis points, um, you know, some people are actually saying the Fed – People are finally starting to see that, okay, maybe the yield curve, is, we've just broken these markets so much that it's not telling us anything useful anymore. That, you know, it might not be that recession indicator because we're just so, the, and it's not just the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, everyone is just so into these markets and in so deep that it, it's in fact broken the yield curve. I just want to
1: go back to your point about trade and tariffs because one of the items that was listed in the report has to do with contacts. This is uh, uh, from the details. Mm -hmm. Contacts in some districts indicated that plans for capital spending had been scaled back or postponed as a result of uncertainty over trade policy. Well, I can't imagine that the Federal Reserve operates in a bubble. And whether it is or isn't, their mandate to look at trade policy, if you're getting reports from some of the Federal Reserve district banks that businesses are changing the way they do business because of this uncertainty. That's got to filter into the conversation. That's not how. Is, how It would be remiss of them if they didn't.
2: No, absolutely. I think that's what people have been waiting for. And now these minutes just give it that validation like, okay, they're finally focused on trade. It was a conversation that I think the market was having sooner than the Fed and was just waiting for the Fed to catch up with them. And I think that's the case with the yield curve conversation, too, that they were just really waiting to see some more meat and some more substance out of the Federal Reserve about these issues, that they're actually acknowledging acknowledging that they're a problem. I think the one thing that I'm a bit disappointed in is there was a brief discussion uh, towards the beginning of the minutes about the Fed funds rate and the rise in it and what's been responsible for it. And the, you know, they're very quick to say, oh, you know, it's really an issue with front end borrowing. Now with all this increased treasury bill supply, there's competition for, for investment in the front end. So, you know, the primary lenders in the Fed funds market now have other options and are moving money out of there. Um, but the week after the minutes, the Fed funds rate went up two basis points. So it narrowed that gap after making this technical adjustment. It narrowed again. And people, and so I think they have some rethinking to do about that one, because I do think that we are, in fact, getting some effects of the balance sheet runoff. And now that starting as of Monday, the reinvestment caps are larger, they're now $24 billion for treasuries, that this is something that they have to pay attention to, that you know the runoff and the balance sheet on one is starting to have an effect and the front end markets are really starting to feel it.
3: Alex, we, we just have a, uh, about a minute left, but mm-hmm. it's the yield curve is not like the weather. It's not something that we can talk about but do nothing about. And in the very little time we have left, can't the Fed do something about it?
2: they could stop raising rates. Like Really, I think the biggest mistake, and, and I've heard this from a few people on the street, is that the biggest mistake the Fed has made in policy normalization is raising rates and then addressing the balance sheet. If they had wanted to steepen the yield curve, they would have started unwinding the balance sheet and then waited to raise rates. But instead, this is the effect that they're having. And so now people are saying there's a very good chance this curve is going to invert possibly you know as early as the end of the year.
3: Alex, thanks so much. You're such a great guest. Thanks so much for coming on. Alex Harris, a bond reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, really challenging the Fed. Hey, Fed, you made this. You broke this. Pay for it. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Let's give you
1: this detail. Bonds, 2.95% on the 30-year.
4: Nice work if you can get it. And
5: if you get it. Won't you tell me
3: how? Our next guest might just be in cahoots with artificial intelligence. We'll have to ask him some probing questions and see. His name is Matt Swanson. He's a managing partner for Silicon Valley Software Group, and he's joining us from the Bloomberg 960 Studio in San Francisco. Welcome to our show, Matt.
0: Pleasure to be here.
3: Now, McKinsey says, if you can believe them, that AI could eliminate 73 million jobs in the next 12 years? But you see a bright side to that. Let us, uh, let us luxuriate in your optimism, Matt.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I'm very optimistic about the future of AI and humanity. Uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around AI. Uh, people see all these amazing technologies coming out of Silicon Valley, and they have this notion that there's some sort of true intelligence happening. And we're, we're far from there. Uh, the reality is that AI is very effective at structuring large data sets, Uh, But when it comes to making appropriateness, uh, uh, judgments of appropriateness, that's where human judgment is and will be essential for the foreseeable future. There's a lot of activities that we just won't be able to automate with AI.
1: Matt, I'm wondering if you could just give us a little sort of primer on uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and maybe just kind of describe what's the difference between structured data and unstructured data. You know where I'm going.
0: Sure. Yeah. And that is really the conversation to be had. Um, I think what we're seeing, uh, a good analogy is, think about what Oracle did with databases, right? All of a sudden, all this data in the enterprise is now structured in a form. Um, Human operators had to manually set up that structure. Salesforce came along, did the same thing with CRM, right? Customer information is now structured. With AI, we're seeing the opportunity to go even deeper. We're going to be able to now structure uh, orders of magnitude larger data sets to personalize suggestions for folks, uh, to help uh, assist uh, jobs, uh, people performing their jobs. That's the sort of structuring that we're talking about.
3: All of us have uh, called the uh, consumer helplines of companies and had varied degrees of satisfaction with that sort of thing. Now, you think that there's going to be a lot of uh, AI improve, improving on that experience. Can you tell us some, some about that?
0: Yeah, I think it's helpful to look at a particular sector like call centers. Uh, my company, Augment, uh, operates in that in that industry. Uh, we're an AI solution for for these call center agents. And as the name implies, we're not looking to automate away the work uh, quite the contrary, we're actually looking to enable all of those 10 million agents who are talking to customers to allow them to deliver more value to their to their customers. And this is, I, I think, a, a perfect example where today a lot of the operators they're digging through CRMs, they're going through all these disparate data sources. What they really want to do is help someone, and and that's what AI can um, can enable. It can bring all that data, centralize it, make it so that the The agents can make better decisions, uh, provide more value. Matt,
1: explain to Bob what a chatbot is and why a chatbot could be sort of the the trail that leads us to things like natural uh, language processing.
0: Chatbots uh, have had a lot of hype and a lot of disappointment, namely for the reason we talked about at the beginning, which is. AI is not ready to emulate human behavior. Chatbots try to replicate what humans, uh, human decision-making and have, have really come short. Uh, this is where assisted technology, uh, what I was describing earlier, enabling human operators to make better judgments, that, that's the sort of paradigm that I think we're going to see um, play out. And ultimately, that's going to lead to more and more labeled data, which down the road Will allow us to automate more and more of these conversations, but we're a long way from having natural dialogue, having a computer being able to do that on, on its own.
3: For my own personal estate planning, if nothing else,
0: what's the timetable here? When will chatbots replace me? <laughs> well, that, that is a fun question. I think uh, when I say foreseeable future, um, that's a 10 year horizon. I think that. We're going to see an explosion of innovation. Again, I think we're still a ways off, but it's going to happen uh, in our lifetimes. And I'm, I'm placing a decade out where we're starting to see conversational assistance uh, that can, can really help us uh, in robust capacities. Not like Siri today, where it's very limited, but having a broad reach of your day-to-day activities um, uh, assisting you through voice.
1: Well, just give you about 30 seconds there, Matt. What role do you think something like an Alexa is going to play in this?
0: I think Alexa is exactly the the trend that's going to mature over time. I think it's going to take time, but there's a reason that Alexa is taking off. Consumers prefer this sort of interaction. Think about the keyboard. That's not a natural interface for humans, right? We've we've grown accustomed to it. We we are going to see this push toward dialogue toward voice interaction with machines. And I think that's going to lead to a, um, a very interesting outcome where humans and machines are uh, assimilated in a, in a lot of ways. I think through dialogue, we're going to see that natural uh, assimilation take fold.
1: Thanks very much for being with us. Matt Swanson, managing partner at uh, Silicon Valley Software Group, SVSG, on artificial intelligence. And machine learning, and uh, you're going to still have a job, Bob. I every... love
3: his optimism. I wish I shared it. Come
5: fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. You know,
3: Boeing poo-pooed the small jet business, but look, you, you today they forge an alliance with Embraer to do just the to, to, to build small jets. To talk about it, we have Ken Hebert, the Managing Director and Analyst for Canaccord Genuity in San Francisco, on the telephone. And here in our Bloomberg headquarters studio, we have Brooke Sutherland, who is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Welcome, both of you. We'll start with you, Brooke. You wrote this terrific column today about Boeing going on the defensive with this Embraer deal. Tell us why it's a defensive action.
4: Sure. So, you know, these companies have had a relationship for a number of years. They have collaborated on research and then a military cargo tanker uh, jet. And then, you know, but they really have been back and forth. And we didn't really see a crystallizing of this relationship until more recently, which comes after Airbus announced a tie-up with Bombardier. Now, that collaboration came about because of Boeing, really, which went after Bombardier accused it of using unfair Canadian subsidies to compete for deals.
1: I want to ask you, Ken Herbert, just to maybe step back for a second and explain to people what is a scope clause, and why does that have an effect on the size of jets that, air, that airlines are able to really fly? and make money. Uh,
6: yeah. Hi, thanks. Good afternoon. So uh, specifically, it refers to the the pilots and the number of aircraft and, and what the pilots can fly that an airline can operate in on certain routes in its fleet. So that's why you see some natural cutoffs in terms of a still regional jet marketplace. But then obviously we're Boeing and Airbus start to to compete at sort of the, you know, 130 ish to 140 passenger range. Um, so. You know, barring any significant changes to scope clauses, which are, which are mandated by, you know, the government, there will continue to be this regional jet marketplace, but it is clearly getting bigger. And that's why both Bombardier and Embraer are obviously Bombardier in the case of the C-Series, and Embraer now with the E-2s getting much more aggressive in that, in that small, mid-sized marketplace.
3: Brooke, how much did the, uh, did the other deal, the one with uh, Airbus, have to do with this deal with Boeing and Embraer?
4: You know, I think Boeing would tell you that it is not a reaction to the Airbus-Bombardier deal. They they build this um, joint venture with Embraer as sort of an evolution of their relationship. But I think, I mean, look, when you just look at the timing of this, you look at the reality that this is a small jet market that for quite a long time, Bombardier and Airbus kind of snubbed their nose at, that they look down upon as, you know, not necessarily having as attractive profitability prospects. For Boeing to be making this move now, I think, tells me that, you know, they definitely feel that hole in their portfolio after seeing Airbus pursue this deal with Bombardier.
1: Well, just a little bit more on that whole concept, Ken. Uh, Is there really going to be a demand for these kinds of aircraft that seat less than 150 people?
6: Yeah, and I would agree with with what Brooke just said. I think clearly once uh, Airbus took over or, or essentially took over the C-Series and then suddenly looked like was going to make that program much more competitive, Embraer really had no choice but to pursue something with Boeing to give it much more competitive strength in the, in the changing market dynamics for its E-Series or, or E-Jet, which the E-2 aircraft, which is what they've been spending a significant amount of money developing, and it's their new product. So I think at, at the end of the day, it's still a very niche market, um, and I would agree that it's, you know, you you look about. You look at the number of, of E2s that Embraer will develop and deliver in a couple of years, and it's still less than what Boeing will do in, in two months with its 737. So, it's a niche a niche marketplace. Um, and of course, Boeing is is highlighting the opportunities and the options to sort of see significant value creation from this transaction. But fundamentally, it is a defensive move in response to what Airbus has done with Bombardier in that marketplace.
3: Ken, if you take all four of these companies, who's the biggest winner out of all of them in this uh, merger?
6: Um, well, this doesn't. This this I would say Airbus is the biggest winner. I think the the C series is everything I've heard a very good airplane. Um, I think it was really plagued by a lot of decisions that Bombardier made. You know, going back five or ten years around around pricing and how it's tried to pursue this market. And I think Airbus got that for a phenomenally attractive valuation. So that. Clearly, is a positive, but I would highlight that you know while Boeing is is obviously investing you know just under four billion dollars here, there's not a lot of downside here, and it is a defensive move for Boeing. Not a lot of downside, and there there could be some benefits they realize from what Embraer has done in the services market, what Embraer has done in in some of these other markets, and with you know with some of the technologies they've got and and some of the options they give Boeing around vertical integration and other areas. But I think when it's all said and done, I think Airbus clearly will look like the company with its first-mover advantage and its investment in the C-Series is probably coming out as 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 the best from all of this.
1: Well, I want to thank you both for joining us. Uh, Brooke Sutherland, uh, Deals and Industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And you can follow Brooke, as we all do, on Twitter at BLSuth. That's... Uh, B-L-S-U-T-H. And you can follow uh, Ken Herbert of uh, Canaccord Genuity at Canaccord Genuity. He's a managing director and analyst based in San Francisco.
3: This, this is a, a really interesting little niche. It's, it's, they're bigger than puddle jumpers, these small jets, but they're smaller than the humongos uh, who go intercontinental.
1: Yes. They compete uh, against, you know,
3: driving. They kind of do, yeah. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets.
1: I'm driving in my car. I'll turn
2: on the radio. How about you let me drive?
4: Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's
2: gonna drive you
1: home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. He's the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
3: With just a little less than 10 minutes to the closing of the stock market, we have Wayne Wicker. He's the chief investment officer for the International City Management Association Retirement Corp, where he manages about $29 billion, and he's going to ease our passage into the end of trading day from Washington, D.C. Wayne, what what stands out to you on this uh, one day after the Independence Day trading day?
5: Well, obviously, anxiety is uh, heightened among investors, uh, and uh, the trade and tariff uh, wars continue to be a focus uh, for everybody, uh, uh, whether it's here in the United States after we've had a day uh, to celebrate our independence or around the world. So I think that Uh, it tends to continue to uh, overwhelm uh, markets. And uh, despite that, uh, we're having a pretty good day here today.
1: Wayne, as the chief investment officer helping to manage nearly $30 billion of uh, International City Management Association Retirement Corporation, um, you've got responsibility for people's financial future, and I mean way in the future. Uh, Do you see the cost of investments, such as hedge funds, to be such an important topic now as it was maybe a year ago?
5: Well, Tim, I think that uh, as we think about uh, managing, uh, uh, as you would suggest, way into the future, uh, we tend to look at uh, broader asset categories. And so uh, certainly expenses do become a significant factor uh, especially as they compound over a period of time. So uh, we are sensitive to the fees that are associated uh, uh, with the types of uh, vehicles that we're using, and we're constantly trying to push to uh, lower those fees to pass along uh, investment gains to our uh, uh, investors.
3: A lot of the uh, managed funds are complaining that the passive funds are taking over, and I'm wondering if, uh, if you have a certain mix yourself of passive and active
5: we absolutely do we uh we complement uh, uh a lot of core strategies through a passive approach uh and complement that with a range of 15-16 uh active funds and so in in my view uh you can combine both uh, active and passive uh strategies to hopefully over long periods of time uh provide a Hopefully, a, a, a excess rate of return, uh, but uh, muting the volatility relative to any benchmark you're managing against.
1: Wayne, want to get your thoughts specifically on what's happening in the financial sector and whether banks and financial companies have been uh, overlooked in in the rally in stocks.
5: Well, Pim, uh, as you and I've talked about in the past, uh, financials is an area where I find uh, a lot of attraction. Uh, They've been held back by slowing loan growth this year. I think trade tensions and uh, obviously a narrowing gap between short- and long-term interest rates. But uh, having said that, uh, if you look at a lot of uh, the banks that are out there, uh, I still believe they're poised uh, to uh, do well over the next 12 months. Uh, They are trading at lower valuations. They have been recently given, uh, through stress tests, the opportunity to either Boost dividends or buyback shares, and so I think that there's some attractive names out there uh, that over the next 12 months uh, you'll be glad you've owned.
3: Pim likes the banks or likes to look at the banks. I like to look at the energy stocks. I'm a little bit flummoxed, however, because they seem to be going uh, one day up, one day down. Uh, where are you at uh, as far as the energy sector is concerned?
5: Yep, yeah, Bob. This has been an area that we've liked for a long time. I've liked uh, this uh, sector primarily because if you look over the last year, uh, the price of oil has uh, essentially doubled. And uh, energy is one that generally starts out to outperform uh, ahead of an equity market peak and continues to lead early into a recession. I'm not predicting a recession right now, but uh, we have seen periods of time where energy has uh, uh, sustained a period of outperformance. I think you're seeing one of those right now. Uh, and I believe that having a diversified basket uh, of uh, energy companies provides you with a little bit of income, uh, also with the upside for uh, a continued earnings growth that we're going to be seeing as analysts have to catch up on their earnings expectations uh, given the steady price of uh, uh, oil these days.
1: Wayne, as someone who has a, a CFA designation plus an MBA, I also want to mention you've got two undergraduate degrees, one in business administration as well as communications and journalism. I want you to use that last degree to tell us about the trade and tariff wars. Are we making too much of it?
5: Well, I think that at this point in time, uh, the jury is still out whether or not uh, the discussion on trade and tariff wars are going to be one that is a point of negotiation or one that actually is put into action. And uh, to this point, uh, I've felt that uh, we have been using this as a negotiation tool. uh, And I think that the market is quickly coming to the point where they're saying, that may have been the case, but uh, we are soon going to be having to uh, make a turn at the uh, fork in the road, and uh, I think that that's why uh, markets are still concerned about this. To me, I think that you continue to look at underlying earnings growth uh, of S&P 500 companies. It's going to continue to be strong, and I think that that should lead uh, investors to feel a little bit more comfortable going into the fourth quarter, especially after mid-year elections.
3: Wayne Wicker, chief investment officer for International City Management Association Retirement Corp. in Washington. Thanks so much for being with us, Wayne. You know, Pim, this might go down as the day before the tariff war really got going. Uh, you know, tonight, uh, Trump said he's going to put the hammer down and uh, lay some tariffs on the Chinese, and the Chinese have promised to reciprocate. Well, stocks are moving higher.
0: Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.